All right, my friends. Uh, so I've got big news to announce. I'm leaving this summer. But I'll be back in the fall. I hope I have your attention now. What does that mean? I'm leaving this summer, but I'll be back in the fall. I have been blessed by the board and by this church with the gift of having a sabbatical that will be starting this summer. A sabbatical. What's that? Well, at the root of a sabbatical is a Sabbath. It's a time of Sabbath rest, but Sabbath isn't just about rest. It's about worship. It's about me receiving a gift that I can receive some rest. I can worship God through some study and planning and preparation. And yes, some travel, some vacation time, seeing some old family and friends, and coming back refreshed and ready to lead ministry in new and exciting ways as we move then to the end of summer and into the fall. What is amen? What does it mean for a church? It means that a church learns that it's really the church of Jesus Christ, that it's his church, that he is the head, that we follow him to the glory of the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit, that it doesn't just hang on one person. So, amen, that's right. So, I have to say this. On one level, I am very blessed already, and I am very excited, and I really am looking forward to some time to travel and learn and grow as I look to turning 50. Can you believe that? It's a good thing I get all this Botox and surgery so I still look young. I'm going to be turning 50. So I'll literally be finishing my sabbatical and turning 50 and coming back for the second half of my life in ministry because I'm living to 100. So I'm very excited about that. Here's the other side of it. I'm a little nervous. I'm a little nervous that you all are going to realize that I'm not the smartest or the brightest or the most gifted or the most spiritual person in the room. (laughs) I'm a little nervous that you all are going to realize how many gifts God has put into you and how many of you are equipped and capable to share good news and to teach and to lead and to serve and to do the work of God. But I only hope that you will welcome me back (laughs) when it comes to the fall. Seriously, I'm very excited for this opportunity. And I'm very excited for what this opportunity can mean and do for a church as the church together, not just one person, as the church is the body of Christ and does the work of God in our community and in our world. Make sense, friends? We're going to be sharing more about this. We just didn't want to catch you off guard when it's all of a sudden, George isn't going to be around for a few weeks. No, we're going to let you know. We're going to inform you. You're going to be a part of the process. And it is really going to be an awesome, awesome summer, and I'll be praying and praying and praying that I'll come back to a church that is doubled, tripled, quadrupled, a hundredfold by the blessing of God and his work. Does it make sense? Ah, there we go. Makes sense. All right. Let me transition now with a prayer, and then we're going to get into God's word for us this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this new year. Still, Lord, as we uh, kind of are still just standing at the, at the front of 2022, I do want to ask your blessing, your grace to go out ahead of us, preparing the way, just like we learn of uh, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, who was called and equipped to prepare the way for the coming Messiah, Lord. I pray that you are still going ahead and preparing our church, our community, our people for great works, for great things to be done in your name, for a great harvest of life for you, Lord Jesus. So thank you for 2022. Thank you for your church as we step into this season. Lord, thank you ahead for all the great things that will happen in your name and for your glory. We pray this 
In your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let me start today's message uh, with a bit of a story. I'll put it this way. Um, January 6th. What comes to mind now when you hear January 6th? I have to say that January 6th started off with a surprise for me. January 6th, this past week, started with a phone call when I heard the news, which is tragic on one hand, but glorious on another, that our brother, Gail Katz, has gone on to glory. He's graduated to heaven to be with his Lord and Savior. We celebrate a life lived for Jesus Christ faithfully. We mourn our loss. So my day did not start off as I thought it would. As I was reeling a bit from that, I turned on the news, and it hit me like a truck, frankly, because I'd kind of forgotten from the news that I just heard that it was the anniversary of the attack on the Capitol. And I must admit, in that moment, I was very pulled in to that downward spiral of anxiety and disease, disease, worry, concern, all of that stuff that can happen from watching that news cycle and remembering those tragic events from a year ago. And then it hit me. I had an epiphany because it was epiphany. Does anybody understand or know anything that I'm talking about? Jan Amen. January 6th has been and will be until he comes again. Amen. I already won an amen. We got to get this preaching going here. It has been and will be until he comes again before January 6th carried with it all that January 6th is. Now, January 6th was and is our celebration, our celebration, the people of God, the people of faith, the people of Jesus Christ. It is our celebration of the epiphany. And the epiphany is about the light of the gospel shining forth in Jesus Christ on our world. So we hold on to epiphany above all other things. Now, I am not saying, I am not saying we aren't engaged with the culture, we aren't aware of cultural events, and we don't even work and pray for change in the name to the glory of Jesus Christ. I am not saying that at all. What I am saying is part of our witness, part of our calling, is that we rise above the current events to focus on the event that changed the world, the event that, notice I'm still pointing to the star, the event that changed the world, the event that is changing lives, the event that gives us all the hope that we all need for anything and everything that comes our way. Are you with me, people? We have and hold on to the epiphany, the revelation, the dawning of the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ on us and on all of creation, and we shine forth that light. By the way, before I forget, if you weren't here for Christmas Eve, please take one of the lights. Honestly, please take them, put it on your desk, put it on your table, put it somewhere that will remind you that the light shines forth in the darkness, that Jesus is the light of the world, and that his light shines through your life. So please, please, these are a gift. We want you to take that as a reminder for 2022 of the light shining forth in your life. Now, we know, well, actually, maybe some of you don't know. Maybe some of you are still a bit confused. So what are you talking about? Epiphany, George, what is that all about? Well, 12 days after Christmas, you probably all know that song, the story is told, and we remind ourselves the story 
of the magi or the wise men or the we three kings as we sometimes sing. I'm guessing that all of us, maybe all of us, are already familiar with that story. But what is the beauty of Epiphany is by pulling it out of the celebration of Christmas, the birth of Jesus Christ, we can focus on the deeper meaning then of this visit to Jesus Christ, what it meant then and what it means for us. So we are about to unpack a little bit the story of Epiphany, the story of the wise men. But before we get there, because I want to unpack it, let's have a little bit of a quiz here, okay? I got a quiz here. I need you to participate with me. The story of the wise men or the magi. How many were there? Give me an answer. Three. Whoa, trick question. We don't know. We actually don't know. It says a group of wise men showed up. We claim that there's three. That's probably because we know that there are three gifts coming, but we really actually don't know how many there were. Does anybody know? Here's the bonus question. Uh, tradition has given them three names. Anybody know the three names? Anybody want to shout them out? Anybody? Nobody? Nobody remembers the three names? Belthazar, Caspar, and Melchior. I don't know if I'm pronouncing those right, but tradition has that those are their three names. Okay, uh, so three names. And we know the, uh, that they brought three gifts. Anybody know what the gifts were? Anybody? Shout them out. Shout them out. Gold. Uh, yeah, I'm hearing a lot of mumblings of that. Gold and frankincense and more and disposable diapers. That is in the subtext of the, of the story. So uh, actually, there's a joke that goes, how do we know that they were men? Because if they were women, they would have brought disposable diapers, formula food, and things that actually would help a new parent and a new child. So we know that they're men. All right. What did they ride? What did they ride? Trick question. Doesn't say. We don't know if they rode camels. We don't know if they walked. What we would know culturally is they came from the east. And some of us here probably heard of an Arabian stallion. So if they rode anything, it was probably a horse. Okay. One more question. One more question. This is the big one. Were they at the birth of Jesus? Oh, you guys are smart. This is a sharp, sharp crowd. They were not at the birth of Jesus. So all of your nativity sets are wrong. All of your nativity sets, they're leading you astray. At, 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 at worst, they're unbiblical. They are trying to deceive you. They're heretical. They are telling a false gospel. No, no, no. So, But we throw them into the nativity scene, and honestly, that's fine. Don't go throwing away your camels. Don't go throwing away your three little kings. It's a beautiful thing. But what we're about to learn, because we're going to unpack the story a little bit now, is that they weren't there at the birth of Jesus. They came after the fact. They came after the star appeared, and they followed that star, and they found Jesus. With that now in place, let me make sure that the other technologies are working. I'm going to try and pull up my screen here, see if I can get it connect. And here, now this is the story of the epiphany, the revelation of the light to the world. Here it is, Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. And they asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, 
where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Somebody say, overjoyed. They were overjoyed. And listen to this. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, and they bowed down, and they worshiped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of our Lord. When we think about this scene now, when we pull it out of the context of Christmas and the nativity sets, and we look to the Bible, what we're seeing perhaps here is a very different scene than we have been led to believe. Now, again, not that there's anything wrong with that, but let's take some time to understand why for centuries now the church has uplifted this story to be held on its own account as the epiphany, the light that shines forth on what has happened and what is happening and what will be to come through the work and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Whenever we read the story and we think about it culturally and in context again, we don't know if it was three, we don't know if it was 30, chances are it was the higher number. It was something like a caravan because we read little details like all of Jerusalem was disturbed. They were curious. They were roused up at this caravan that shows up in their town. And we know that these people have some power, some prestige, some influence because they get a court with the king, with Herod. You and I don't walk into the capital Again, cultural overtones now of what's happening in our world and what we celebrate here. We don't walk in and get invited and get to tell the president or Congress or whoever else what's on our mind. No, so kind of picture that eastern caravan coming with treasure, a security guard entail, you know, the, the black SUVs or whatever it's going to take, you know, just to get there. People know something is happening. Curiosity is rising up. This isn't a normal event. And then the news begins to spread. They are coming to worship a newborn king, a king of the Jews. It makes perfect sense that they go to Jerusalem for the star we know had led them there. It also makes perfect sense because we know that Jerusalem is the center of the religion and the worship and the people of God. It just makes sense that they go to the capital where they believe the king will be found, and it makes sense that they go to the place where they think it will be found, the biggest castle on the biggest hill, and it's currently occupied by Herod. And they walk in, and they get welcomed. 
So who are these guys? Let's actually break that down before we go to the next part. We call them magi. We call them wise men. We call them maybe the we three kings. There's an element of truth and revelation to all of those. I like to just call them magi because that's not a word we normally throw around. So it highlights the unique role that these people play in the world and in the ministry at this time of Jesus Christ. And we like that word because it really only appears one other time in the New Testament. If you open up your Bible to Acts chapter 8, you're going to read about Simon Magus, which is the singular of Magi. Or your Bible might say Simon the Sorcerer. If we look backwards, we find that Joseph was brought to the court of Pharaoh where there were also Magi, sorcerers, magicians, wise men. If we turn to Esther, we realize that she was brought into the court of Persia, and there she dealt with the Magi. If we look to the book of Daniel, we also see that he and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were also brought into the court of Babylon, where they were listed amongst the number of Magi. So when we think about these as Magi, we like to categorize all of our little, you know, kind of uh, uh, disciplines, you know, our academics and our sciences and our religion and our behavioral studies. They don't have all those categories back then. It's all kind of pulled together. Whenever and wherever and from whoever, we can get some wisdom, we can get some insight, we can get some learning, we can get some revelation. They're going to be pulled into the king's court, to the Magi. I think it boils down to this. We can kind of think of them as both, both astrologists and astrologers. Astrologists study the science of the stars. Astro I, I might be mixing up my astro astronomers or astrologists and astronomy. What? I'm mixing it up. Who are the people that read the astrologists and astronomers? You know what I'm talking about. You know, they're, they're studying the stars. They see the new star. They know scientifically something is happening but they're also interpreting it. And their interpretation is this means something of cosmic importance has happened. A new king has been born. And what their belief is, is if they follow that star, if they follow the light, it will reveal what has happened and what it means. We can also call them wise men, of course, because they are seeking wisdom. They are seeking truth. They are seeking revelation. We probably is misleading if we call them kings because they're representatives of the kings. The kings have to stay in their own land. The kings have business to run. You know, the kings are doing their thing. But they're definitely representing the kings as they come now with these gifts, and they show up at Herod's door. There's a lot we could unpack in the details of the story. There's so much beauty in this but let's get it down to more of an application and, and intersection with our own lives. I believe as I read through the story again now this year, three responses to Jesus are highlighted in the three groups that have now appeared. And that is Herod, and that is his own wise men, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and then the wise men themselves. Herod represents for us selfish interest in Jesus. Herod feigns an interest in the birth of this one called king of the Jews. He says, go and worship and tell me where he was so that I might come in to worship him. And we know that, of course, he's leading them on because he has his own selfish interest in finding Jesus. And we know that it is revealed that his selfish interest in finding the new baby born king of the Jews is to kill the baby born king of the Jews. We know the end of the story we know that they are warned in a dream. 
We know that they go back home by another route. We know that Jesus, through Joseph, is warned in a dream as well, and they escape to Egypt and later come back where he will be raised in Nazareth instead of Galilee. All of this fulfilling promises of the scripture, but we see here in Herod the selfish interest in Jesus. And before we dismiss him and say, there is no Herod in any of us. Now, now, I get to be, now, now I'm going to be the offensive preacher here. I think there's a little Herod in all of us. I think there's a little health and wealth prosperity gospel in all of us. I think there's a little bit of all of us that wants to use and manipulate or cajole Jesus to our own means and our own ends. That's very human. That's very natural. It's very natural to want to live a devout life and to want to be blessed in response. It's very natural and normal to want to give to God and to have that sense of that feeling of blessing coming back to us. It's very natural to want to lift up a prayer for ourselves or for a loved one or for a church or a community and have it answered the way we want it answered. What do we do when we don't get the blessing? What do we do when we don't get the answer we want? What do we do when the cancer isn't cured? What do we do when our kids still walk in rebellion? What do we do whenever our marriage isn't magically restored? What, what do we do when our interest doesn't match with the interests of Jesus? If I can be really offensive and really blunt now, I think there's that part of us, if we're really honest again, we almost want to kill Jesus as well. There's that part of us that yet wants to kill off the teachings, the harder revelation, the hard work of discipline and discipleship, the hard work of following Jesus through those valleys. There's a part of us where we can also want to kill off Jesus Christ. Jesus, I know what you say about living generously towards others but I'd really like to just kill that part of Scripture. Jesus, I know what you say about needing to forgive people who want to persecute and hate me. I really don't want to forgive that person. Jesus, I know what you say about living a virtuous, a moral, a sexually pure life. I know what you say about these ways that I should conduct myself, but I don't want to live that way. All of us have the capacity and the proclivities to want to kill off those revelations from Jesus that don't match how we want to live our lives. I know it's in me. I know it's in all of us. What are we going to do with that? What are we going to do with that? Okay, there we go. <laughs> fun. <laughs> there we go. That's fun. Hey, we do, I thought this was good news, George. It's going to get good. It's going to get really good. Let us recognize all of us have the capacity for that selfish interest in Jesus and that capacity to want to kill off the harder elements of Christianity and faith and discipleship and walking with him. This is the one, this, this group really gets me. These religious leaders clearly show a disinterest in Jesus. Okay, so this baby has been born. This caravan has shown up in town. This means a great deal to these people. And they're smart enough to even figure out, oh, yeah, we know the story. Yeah, the, the one born king of the Jews, he's supposed to be born in that town of, of, of Bethlehem. Yeah, yeah, totally makes sense to us. And, and then, of course, these uh, magi, they're all excited to go and worship Jesus. They're overjoyed. They're going to guess. We know all that stuff is coming. But here's the other thing that we pick up from the story. They don't even go. 
It's, it's like, okay, we're going to go and, and meet the one-born king of the Jews. You coming? And they're like, nah, no, just go and give us a report. Tell, tell, tell us what it's like. I mean, can you believe an event of cosmic revelation is unfolding before you? And you're like, nah, yeah, I, I, whatever. Yeah, I, you know, I was, I, yeah, I was going to watch you know, the bachelorette tonight, you know, so, uh, you know, just, yeah, I, and when I say that, I, I, you know, Beth, Bethlehem is like five miles away. I mean, this isn't even like a big journey for the people of Jerusalem. It's like they could get there like by the afternoon <laughs> and go and see what's happening for themselves. And they don't care. They don't care enough. And again, there's a little bit of those religious leaders in all of us. Because all of us have the capacity to be so consumed with the tyranny of the urgent. And there is a tyranny of the urgent. And the things that press on us. And the responsibilities that we carry. Getting the meals cooked. Getting the house cleaned. Getting the kids to school. Getting to the appointment. Getting the bills paid. Getting this and that done. We know the tyranny of the urgent. But these guys let the tyranny of their urgent and what they think is most important usurp what is of cosmic revelation and utmost eternal importance. And again, if I'm honest with myself, if I say that there is nothing more important than my soul, if there is nothing more important than considering my eternal position before a holy God, why do I care so little about the matters of eternity in my soul so often in my life? I, I just get wrapped up in the tyranny of the urgent, even though I'm supposed to be the guy above all else pointing to caring for your soul and thinking about matters of eternal consequence. So I just implore you, there is nothing more important than for all of us to consider the revelation of God for us through Jesus Christ and what it means for our soul and what it means for our forever and what it means for the forever of all those whom we know and whom we love. You are no fool to consider your standing before God. You are no fool to consider what is of eternally important. In fact, to allow the day-to-day, -day, the mundane, the in and out, and I don't want to, like, berate that stuff. I mean, you, you get it. But pause in this season. Pause daily to consider what is most important. And I would pray that all of us, in a small sense, in the end of each and day, we would have our own little epiphany, that we would do those things that matter eternally, that by the close of every day, as we set our head on the pillow, as we go to sleep, we would be able to say, we've attended to our soul. We've attended to the matters that matter most to God. We've attended to the needs that have eternal consequence in my life and the lives of others. Let us attend to what eternally matters. Amen, friends? Don't let the tyranny of the urgent usurp what is most important. Don't be like those religious leaders. Meh. Yeah, go and tell us what you think. <laughs> that, that's just shocking to me. Okay. But then we see. Then we see the beautiful response of these magi. These are people of importance. These are men of means. These are people who could have gone any other way. They could have gone the way of Herod. Well, we don't want to threaten our standing. They could have gone the way of the religious leaders. Ah, what, 
what, who cares what's happened in Jerusalem? What's happened in our own backyard here? These guys see something of cosmic significance, and they are willing to sacrifice their time, their energy, their resources. They are willing to get up and to go and to travel and to see what is unfolding. And I love that. We have to love that. And, and, and I don't have this thought fully developed because it was only developing with my epiphany on January 6th, only three days ago. Here is what is just God is always up to something surprising. God is up to things that are shocking. God is up to things that turn the values of the world upside down. Here we are in Jerusalem, in the holy city, the city that has been the epicenter of the worship of the true and living God, the city where Jesus will come in and be crucified, the city where we will see Jesus resurrected, the city where we will see the church born, the city where we will see the gospel then be go out to the world. And who is announcing the good news to this city first and foremost? A bunch of pagans, a bunch of foreigners, a bunch of outsiders. And maybe that should offend us a little bit, right? Who are these people to tell us the true king has been born? I don't know. Except that seems to be, to me, what God has done. He uses these outsiders. He uses these foreigners. He uses these people to come into his holy city to share the good news that the people should have already been ecstatic about. Our God is up to something. Our God is flipping things on their heel. Our God is still shocking. Our God is still surprising. And our God is still good in what he is doing. I don't fully have the thought developed, but there's just something amazing to me about this revelation and how these new people enter the scene and begin to declare the good news that in turn will go out to all of the world. Let's rush through then. Well, we won't rush too quick, but so what happens? Let me just say three things real quickly. First, we see that they are overjoyed. They saw the star, and they are overjoyed. I don't like that word, because how can you have too much joy? <laughs> can anybody here think you can have too much joy? I've had enough of that joy. Let's get some misery going now. I, no, no. I, oh, David, he, yeah, that's right. He's a tortured soul. He's an artist. So, but, you know, we'll, we'll let him live in his, in his melancholy. So listen here, friends. I, okay, overjoyed. Like, can you have too much joy? Can you have? No. I, I'm at the place in my life. I, I've said this before. I've preached on this before. I was one of those serious Christians for a long time. And, and it, I, fr frankly, I was just too serious. Too serious. The injustice of the world is, 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 is too great. Uh, you know, there's poverty in the world is too much. Um, oppression in the world is too overbearing. Like, there's a lot. There's a lot that should weigh heavy on us. But I got to be filled with joy now. We got to be a church filled with joy now. We have been given the gift of being filled with joy. And I no longer think that they are diametrically opposed positions to where we stand as the people of God. We can carry the weight of the world on our shoulders, and yet we can be lifted high, overjoyed with the good news that has come to us through Jesus Christ. I want to be a people of joy. When people wish you Merry Christmas, we should rejoice. When people say hi to you, we should rejoice. Whenever we open the doors for worship, we should rejoice. 
rejoice. When we invite you to a Bible study, we should rejoice. When we invite you to serve the homeless in our community, you should rejoice. And when we pass the proverbial offering plate, we should be a people that rejoice. When our neighbors have needs and we can step in and help them, we should rejoice. We should be rejoicing in all of these things and all of these opportunities where God calls us. Can we get some rejoicing going on? Can I get just a quick like hallelujah, amen, a clap for God? Yes. Okay, I'm going to thank you. You're all like, sure, I'll do that, George. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really going to push it now, though. Can I, can I really push it now? This is like the most offensive sermon ever, I think, for some reason. Um, what did they do? It says that they worshiped him, but not just that they worshiped him. Did you catch how they worshiped him? I've done this before, so I'm going to do this again because, you know, Epiphany comes up every three years, and it came up in the cycle of preaching things. So it says that they laid prostrate. They bowed down. Sometimes the position of our life says everything, right? If a man gets down on his knee, you, you know, before a woman, like, you, you know what's going to happen, you know? <laughs> like, like, sometimes the position says it all. And I just want to put it out there for us that there's something about our position. I mean, at some point, you can do this. I, I, you can do it in worship. You can do it when we're singing. It doesn't, I won't be offended at all. Because there's just something about our, we're incarnate. Christmas has taught us. We are in the flesh. We are incarnate. We are embodied creatures. What happens with our bodies wonderfully matters. It's why we care for the sick. It's why we take care of widows and orphans. It's why we pray for those who need, 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 need healing. Our bodies matter. So the position of our bodies matters. And there's just something about that position where they literally lay prostrate. They bow down before a baby. And really that says it all, doesn't it? That position of our lives shows everything. I just want us all to assume that position, that posture of complete surrender, of bowing down, of laying before Jesus. Everything. So they're overjoyed. A complete surrender of their lives to the worship of Jesus. And then they have their gifts. And this is what I thought I was going to preach most of my message on, but I just have to whip through it right now. The gifts beautifully pull together everything that we were talking about leading up to the celebration of Christmas. The gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And leading up to Christmas, we talked about Jesus as our king, as our priest, and as our prophet, right? And we know that gold is the gift that you give to a king Gold, gold. You remember those ads? You know, gold, we want your gold. Get in your gold. I mean, we love gold. I mean, I love those old ads about gold. We buy your gold. They bring gold to the king. And we look at the theme of gold throughout the scriptures. We'd see a long thread continuing of the temple and the sacraments and the altar just being overlaid with gold. This is the right and worthy gift to give a king. And so they are pulling together now what we were building up to. This Jesus is the true, the eternal, the right king, the king that we long for, the king who leads with justice, the king who goes before us, the king who feeds us, the king who protects us, the king who guides us, the king who loves his people with his whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, and will even lay down his life for his people. He is the king 
we long for in our lives. He is the priest. We know that that frankincense was an essential element of the incense that would be burned at the altar of the Lord. And so we see their gift, whether, they, again, they knew these things or not, whether they were reflecting on these things or not, that were fulfilling promises of Scripture. The frankincense points us to the finally, the great high priest is coming to us, the one who will stand before God and intercede on our behalf, the one who will, in fact, become the sacrifice for us to restore our relationship with God. We see then the myrrh. This one's a little different. It was also used in incense, but as much as also known about the myrrh, it was one of the essential burying spices, which would be really weird to give essentially an embalming material to a baby that's born. But it's already pointing to the death of Jesus Christ. And like so many prophets, where their ministry cost them their life, we knew the ministry of Jesus, our great prophet, the living word of God, would lead to his death on the cross for us. But I always like to think about this. That powerful scent of myrrh that would have then filled the room where Mary and Jesus were when the Magi came in. What would have been one of the first scents that Jesus would have smelled when life came back into his body on that third day? It would have been that smell of the myrrh and the embalming spices that were laid over his body and over his head. That fragrance that covered that room where he was a baby would cover that tomb when he would rise from the dead. Amen? <laughs> Man, that's a, good, that's a good promise to keep in mind. So, my people, Carlos, we got to lead them. i got to wrap this up here. The people are good to their pastor, and they, they let him preach long sometimes. As we now think about this epiphany, this revelation for us. I think about that old adage that goes out so often during the Christmas season. You've heard it. You've seen it on bumper stickers. I think I've seen Kim wearing the shirt. Maybe it was a different one. I don't know. You have this one, wise men still seek him. You're like, no, that wasn't me, George. So (laughs) I've seen it somewhere. You've seen it. Wise men, wise people still seek him. That's true. I think that's really true. Not to be like Herod and have a disinterest uh, or, or selfish interest, not to be like those religious leaders, to have just disinterest, to wisely seek the one who matters the most eternally. Here is the thing about seeking him. It's cool to be a seeker. I, I've said this before. I preached more. Mes- I've, I preached deeply on this in other messages. There's something that resonates in the heart of people that we are seeking truth. We're seeking to find answers. We're seeking to find the pieces to the puzzle of life and meaning and purpose. And it's cool to seek. It's chic to seek. You know, you can act like again a tortured artist. I'm seeking the truth, right? Yes, but the heart of a true seeker rejoices when it finds, right? The heart of a true seeker rejoices when it finds. And that's what we see these magi do. They sought genuinely. And when they found what they were seeking for, they rejoiced and they worshiped and they offered their very selves these gifts to God. We need to live that way. When we find what we have been searching for, We must rejoice. We must worship. We must give our gifts, and we must share 
this good news. And so I want to end with that encouragement. If you have been seeking, I believe that you will truly find all, all in Jesus Christ. And when you find him, I pray that you will share that good news with our world. That's epiphany. That's the light. That's the promise that we held on to. That's the promise that we will keep holding on to until the light comes again. Let me pray for us, and then we've got a great song to close us out in some worship here. Heavenly Father, 